Welcome to the Converge Community Church Podcast, where we provide for you the previous Sunday morning sermon. And now without further ado, may the Holy Spirit minister to your heart as you hear the preaching of God's Word. So here's a question. We sing these songs, we come to church. You know, it's great to be with you. It's great to be together. It's great to read our Bibles and pray and sing. What difference does it make to have Jesus in our lives? Everything. Amen. I love that. Thanks, Gene. He saves us from our sins. Um, But what change, what differentiates ourselves from our neighbors who don't? And maybe that sounds bad. Let me rephrase it. How does being a Christian impact us on Monday morning or Tuesday? I say that because sometimes it feels like life is just like going through the motions. We're just like everybody else, or I'm like everybody else. My fa- the world, and then other times, the world and the flesh, they seem like they're, they're polar opposites, and they're at war. Can you, can you relate to that at all? Um, how should Jesus impact our lives. I want to look at that. How does Jesus impact our lives? In our passage today, we encounter two different perspectives, and and both are good. Uh, Both fall short of the transformative reality of who Jesus is and what following him means. One group saw Jesus as just a normal guy, and they noted he's the son of a carpenter, Mary, and a brother, and they didn't see him as special. He was a bother. Another perspective acknowledges he's special. He's a teacher and a miracle worker, but it falls short of actually following him and believing. I think those perspectives exist today. Um, Maybe that's your perspective. Either of those cases, most I don't think that way. But at the same time, if we're not careful, I think we can fall into one of these camps without even thinking. So to get at that, what difference does Jesus make in our day-to-day living? I think we'll dive into a text here. We've been working through Matthew, so if you have your Bibles, we'll go back to Matthew chapter 13, verse 53, and we're going to read up through chapter 14, verse 12. And I have Taylor um, reading for us. Would you stand in recognition of God's word? Taylor, would you read for us? You can stand now, if you can. If you can't, that's fine. And when Jesus had finished finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. 
For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother, and his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. Thanks, Taylor. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the thoughts of our hearts be pleasing to you. You are our rock and redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Could I have a couple of people pray for me as I preach? Just raise your hand. Thank you. I just want God's Spirit to speak through His Word to us. And I think His Spirit is here wherever two or more are gathered. He is there in our midst, and God wants to have a relationship with us. He invites us in and wants to talk about our lives to us. And so may He do so in His Word. If you're here last week, you recall, we're, as we work through Matthew, we just finished eight parables in chapter 13. Jesus tells these little stories with little points about the kingdom of heaven. What's it going to be like? Who are his people? What's the value? Where is life headed? Jesus is teaching in clear and memorable and thought-provoking ways. He teaches from mountaintops and boats and homes, and in this passage, a synagogue. Not only that, he had worked wonders. He's like a prophet. He's healing the sick, casting out demons, calming storms, and raising the dead but not in his hometown, not at least many miracles, for a reason we'll soon discuss. Jesus is categorically unlike any prophet before or since. His fame is spreading like a California wildfire. How does our text break down? If you look at our text, you see two sections. You got this chapter 13 section and chapter 14 section. Two parts, two perspectives. Um, And in the first part, chapter 13, verses 53 through 58, the people view Jesus as what? He's an offense. And then verses, chapter 14, verses 1 through 12, Herod views Jesus as a resurrected John the Baptist. He believes he's interesting, but not enough to alter the direction in his life. What's Matthew, the author of this narrative, doing here with these two stories this bio- in his biography of Jesus? Why does he include us? If you want to get at the passage, sometimes it's important for us to think through, why is this here so that we can understand what does it mean to me? Well, they contain chronological history. It's maybe not exactly chronological as we, as we get a flashback into John the Baptist, how he ends up dead, and why Herod thinks he's resurrected or Jesus is the resurrected John the Baptist. Neither depicts a people wanting to follow him into the, follow Jesus into his kingdom, 
both groups of people remind us of a first parable that we saw in chapter 13. Do you remember that? The parable of the sower who sows seed, which is the word of God. And some falls on rocky ground and takes root and dies. Some is snatched away by birds. And some lands on good soil. In both these stories, we see bad, bad fruit. This is not good. The word doesn't take fruit and bear fruit. In contrast, the, 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 to the parables we just saw in parables, we saw them, people finding treasure and doing what? They sell everything. You, you go dig up and you find a treasure uh, uh, at the beach and, and you're going you're to take that and you're going to run with it. And, and, and they, he tells two little stories about a guy who, who's finding a great pearl or, or another guy who finds treasure in a field and sells everything he has to, to obtain that treasure, to obtain the field, to obtain the treasure. And here these people are rejecting Jesus. They're rejecting God's word. Matthew wants his readers, I think, here to evaluate how do we respond to Jesus? What difference does he make? How do we respond to Jesus? Let's evaluate how we respond to Jesus. Jump to Matthew chapter 13. If you have your Bibles, we'll have it projected here, but Matthew chapter 13, verse 53. I want to I show you this. And so we'll walk back through it, verse by verse. When Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas, and are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? If you've been following these, the, the story, do, the, do these verses remind you of any other passage in Matthew so far? Maybe? Chapter 12, verse 46. In chapter 12, verse 46, it says this. While he, Jesus, was speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brother stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and my, who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my mother and sister and brother, and, and uh, my brother and sister and mother. We can forget Jesus is part of a family, and we see that from the beginning of the, 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 the book of Matthew to here. We remember his parents, but he has brothers and uh, sisters as well. And in chapter 13, they haven't forgotten this. They, the townsfolk reference him and reduce Jesus to just another citizen of Nazareth, a carpenter's son, a sibling. Some likely remember him growing up as a kid or working a job. He ate like everyone else. He wore clothes like everyone else. He blended into the crowd. The, only, the first pair miracle we see is in John chapter, I believe it's 6, with the wedding at Canaan. He's not doing miracles up until he's 30. And those in Nazareth thought they knew him. They thought they had him pegged, but they didn't. He was more than meets the eye. Jesus taught there, and how do they react? We just read it. How do they react? 
They're astonished. They're amazed. That sounds good. What were they astonished by? It could have been because he hadn't taught that way before. It could have been because they would expect it. They, they wouldn't have expected this from an uneducated carpenter. It could have been that, like the Sermon on the Mount. If you remember the Sermon on the Mount when we talked through that, he gave six, I want to say six different quotes from the Old Testament. You've heard that it was said, but I say to you, it could be that he's referring to himself as an authority and that shocked them. It could have been that he predicted the future like the prophets of old. Jesus was an expert and he had the truth. He had answers and he had what people needed. And people wanted to hear him and listen to him and he wanted that. But he also wanted them to obey him, to repent and believe him. What was their reaction? Did they do that? They did not. Look at verse 57. What does it say? They took offense at him. And Jesus said, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. Now that's so that my version says it that way. It's, it's fairly um, literal, a literal version. Some versions of our Bibles are more, um, they get the meaning or sense. That's a double negative. In English, we don't use double negatives. A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. What is he saying? In his own hometown, in his household, he's without honor. He's not being honored. He is an offense. They aren't believing him, as we'll see in, in the verse 58. They're upset. Why are they upset? What's so upsetting about Jesus? Have you ever thought that? What's the problem? Did, they, did he call them out? If you remember Matthew, he calls out the Pharisees as hypocrites and a brood of vipers. Did he confront them, their sin? You know, John the Baptist, we read, confronted um, Herod, and that was really offensive to Herod. Were they jealous of his reputation? Here's a carpenter's son teaching in their synagogue. There probably were some people with some learning, some credentials, some experience, some wisdom. Who is he? Were they upset at his theology? In chapter 9, he heals a paralytic. But before that, before that, what does he do? He forgives the guy's sin. And they're like, you can't forgive sin. Only God can forgive sin. And theologically, he's making statements that point to his own divinity. Was it his theology that upset him? We know they're upset. Um, in our Sunday school hour, we have a, a little Bible study before this. You're invited to join us at 10. Uh, Lance brought this, or maybe it was Scott brought this up. Um, in Luke chapter 4, we have a parallel account. Some think this is a different account, but we know it's in Nazareth. He's teaching in a synagogue. They're offended. They're astonished. So it sounds very similar, but Luke goes into detail what exactly has been, has, he said. And so we can see this in Luke chapter 4, and I don't have the verses. Uh, it's in the 20s. Um, it, he's quoting Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me 
Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus had a scroll. He rolls up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. They taught when they were sitting, unlike us. And he began to say to them, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So this is what he said in Nazareth, that he had the Holy Spirit. He was anointed like a king or a prophet is anointed. He is a spokesperson of God. He's offering freedom for prisoner, sight to the blind people, release for the oppressed, and issuing a year of God's blessing. To the listener in town, Jesus is audacious. The nerve, they didn't believe it. He keeps on, re, he keeps on um, speaking in Luke chapter 4, verse 23. He said to them, doubtless you'll quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What you've heard you did at Capernaum, what we've heard you've done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Show me a sign. Prove it. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown, but in truth I tell you, there were many widow in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. It's not going to all over the land of God's, God's promised land, but to Sidon. And there was many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. So we talked about Elijah. Now here's Elisha. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Not one of God's people. And what he says here infuriates them. Why is that? This is a little, I think, this is cloaked to us by thousands of years and some distance culturally. When he heard these things, this, is, this really makes a man. In verse 28, when they heard these things in all the synagogue, they're filled with wrath. They are really angry at this. So much so, they rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of the hill in which the town is built so that they could throw him down off the cliff. That's, that's how mad they are. Now, does that make you upset when you hear something like that? I don't get it, right? It doesn't quite strike me as logical. Like, this is, this is so infuriating. They tried to kill him. Okay, so I try to think through what was going on. Well, first, Jesus compares their reaction to a foreign woman, a widowed woman, and a Gentile leper. He's comparing what Elijah and Elisha did to a, a woman who's a widow and a foreigner and a Gentile leper. Those are people who are outside. And God sent Jesus, sent these prophets to them. And so second, these are marginalized, unclean outsiders. We're in a better place of blessing than the insiders. Third, God sent his prophet to these outsiders. And Jesus is, doing the, is, is being sent the same way. He, he's going to be rejected from these people and he's going out. He's sending them to the outsiders, not the insiders. I, I, I had to get a scholar because it's still, I'm, okay, if that's, if that's the case, we're kind of seeing that. What do, what do scholars think? Here's one scholar. He says, Jesus' audience is becoming increasingly enraged 
as they realize that they will receive no special favors from him, that he considers himself above home ties and traditions. So there's this, hey, we want something from you, and they're not going to get it. Now, it could have been any combination of that. There's still this cultural distance here, but they are upset. They are furious. They're offended in our passage. Does Jesus offend us? Does Jesus offend others? Consider Jesus asking someone to sell everything he has and follow him and make him the most important. Do we, you know, I think, I think there's different ways to connect. We can connect in Sunday school. We talked about connecting to Jesus and what he experienced, but can we relate to the person who hears him, the Nazareth person or the, or the, per, the audience, the crowd? Is Jesus, you know, in sports we have the MVP is Jesus the MVP, the most valuable player in life on the team, or do we want to be? Do we value family and ourselves more than him? I think I can. I think I can, I can struggle with that. Do we, what do we think about habits and routines and traditions and rhythms? Do we value those things more than God's interruptions? Do we value trinkets and stuff and material things? Do we, those things have, our possessions have control over us more than Jesus. If there's something that we cling to that God might release us from, Jesus wants all of us, not just part. So what difference does Jesus make in our life? It's submitting to him and following him wherever he leads. That's what the disciples were learning as they walk with him. And Matthew, I think, highlights this verse in reverse, showing two different examples of people who are groups of, of people whose perspectives were limited. And they're offended. His disciples, you remember, they left their nets to follow him. They left their families They left their wealth. They left predictability, security, and control. They relinquished it to Jesus. They gave it up for the treasure ahead. They gave it up for the blessing. And Nazareth would know nothing of this. And chapter 13 ends, and Jesus mentions something. He uses the word unbelief. How does that work? How does an offense, okay, so they're offended at Jesus, work with unbelief. I think our hearts, that offense, is led by our thoughts. We can trace a line of our actions to our emotions, to our thoughts, our beliefs. I find this at work in me. When I don't want to do what God wants, or say what God wants, and think what God wants, there's a form of unbelief at work in me. I'd rather do what I think is best, or what I want to do. Can you relate? I may not be from Nazareth, or sitting in Herod's throne, but I can see, I can read these verses in Matthew and find God doing slight adjustments in my heart. I can hear Jesus inviting me to follow him. How does this work in Monday? What does it mean to follow Jesus? 
How does it work with Tuesday sports or Thursday lunch or Friday class? We can live in a way that treats Jesus like those in Nazareth. We can live like Jesus doesn't matter and we just do whatever floats our boat or what we usually do. We can operate on impulse and habit and not consider, what would he have us do with this interruption? There's a form of unbelief the believer can struggle with, a functional unbelief, where I live like Jesus is not who he is or he was. Let me give you an example. Okay, this is kind of, I just wrote this up today, so we'll see how this goes. So on a lark, we were not going to do anything for Labor Day. We got so much going on. Money's tight, so we'll just, oh, we're not going to do anything. Well, then we thought, we thought, we started planning Saturday last week. Let's, what could we do? Go to Chicago. That'd be fun. For a little bit of money, we could go see uh, the free zoo. Go, we could go hiking. That would be fun. I found a, a hike um, up north. That'd be great. And then we thought of the, the big thing we could do. Six and a half hours from here, we could go to Niagara Falls. And so we started planning. We didn't tell the kids. We didn't tell the kids. I, I started watching vlogs and making plans and uh, making sure we could get it access into another country. You know, we wanted to go to Canada side. Um, and I got everything lined up. So Sunday, Monday, I started, I bought some tickets and I, I found a cheap place to stay, a, a Bible camp. I'm like, oh, this is great. And I'm watching what to do and what not to do. And, and so we get in our car Friday morning. We only have Friday, Saturday. You know, we could do this. And we're, we're planning it out. We told the kids Thursday, you know, we kind of kept it secret. We're like, how long are we going to keep this a secret? But we, we made the plans like Tuesday, Wednesday that we were going to do it for sure. And so we hop in our car and this is real. I'm not, I'm not making this up. We get in the car, and it's like three hours to the border. We're going to the border. And there's a number of things you cannot bring um, over the border. And I told people about this. And, and then we realized as we're getting closer, we brought something contraband, stuff we shouldn't have brought. And we're just, we'll just tell the people, and we'll just throw it out. That's what I thought. And get to the border. And we say, we, we, we're on. We got this stuff. And, and can we just give it to you? He's like, no, you got to go over there. So we go to customs and we have to wait. And then they search our car and we have to wait. And all of a sudden, you see, I have these dreams of we're going to be going this evening to the falls and it's going to be great. And the Lord is changing it. And I have to work through, am I going to be patient? Am I going to be gracious? Am I going to be kind? Like I'm, my whole apple cart's being upset here. And uh, they were very gracious and nice to us. And they, they let us on the way with four kids a van full of stuff, and uh, we got out of there. My kid's like, they didn't find all the things. <laughs> I'm like, oh, my goodness. I'm glad they didn't find all those things. <laughs> it was pepper spray, but also some knives that boys carry with them, too, you know. I didn't know they brought them. Um, don't bring knives over the board or pepper spray. And uh, so we get past Windsor, and we're going along. The story's not over. And all of a sudden, the engine light starts flashing in the middle of the country of Canada. I'm like, oh, no. And uh, I did find out my phone has service, so I could find something. And so we, we pull over, and we, we're praying. You know, we're good Christians. We're going to pray over our car and cast the demon out of it, right? Maybe the Lord will heal it. And, and so we turn off the car. We're praying. We're talking. We're calm. You know, God's adjusting us. You know, God's working in this. You know, we're not going to be annoyed by each other. And, uh, 
And we'll turn it on again and see if it works. And we turn it on, put it in a drive, the engine's still flashing. We're like, oh no. So we pull off and we driving. I call up, actually I call up a shop and the guy's like, I can take your call. I'm on the line. I'll call you back. We're not going to wait. We, we just start driving this guy's house. It's a guy's house. This is the shop. Iron Mike's. In the middle of nowhere. Yeah, Katie's, Katie's giving me, uh, yeah, she's filling it in. You, four miles away. We were like limping along. It's, we're supposed to be going like, I don't know how many kilometers per hour because everything's in kilometers per hour. We're limping along and we, we pull in to this guy's house with all these cars and I, I explain my story. I'm just really apologetic, asking for mercy, asking for grace. He's got all these cars ripped open in front of, you know, in front of us. And he's like, okay. And he's, he's like, I'm going to show you a Canadian, like, we're nice people here. And so, so he's like, uh, um, I'm going to go to lunch. We're all breaking for lunch right now. But I'll order the part. If they can get the part, we might be able to get it fixed today. If they can't, tomorrow, and we'll see where we go from there. So I'm like, okay. So he's like, you can use my car and go to the Tim Hortons, which is their, their local restaurant, and just wait. So we went to Tim Hortons, and we got some stuff, and they were able to get the part. We come back. I'm like falling asleep in his yard. Like, uh, like it's hours. We wait hours. And uh, he got the part. He's able to put it in. They fixed our car. It was totally God's grace. But our, my plans just totally crumbled for the evening. We, were just, we got to our Bible camp and crashed, and uh, we made it. Our car got fixed, and we got to see Niagara Falls yesterday and got back safe but, uh, today, but, or last night. But, but see, I think the Lord does that, where he interrupts us. We have these plans, and we're thinking, oh, this is going to be great. And then it's like, no, we're going to do it this, this way. Someone comes in and interrupts your business meeting, or the report didn't get finished, or the product's not in, or you, the salesperson said something, but... That's not actually the case. And so the Lord, he's over all this. And he invites us to follow him and to be a beatitude person, a person who's, who's humble and, and hungering and thirsting to follow him and, and trusting him and showing mercy to each other. And sometimes I do well. Sometimes I do well. And other times um, I need to repent of my sin and ask for forgiveness from my impatience and my attitude and my complaining spirit and and other things that just aren't of God. And maybe you can relate. So our actions really demonstrate our thoughts. Are we going to believe that Jesus is who he said he was? Or are we going to believe, you know what? It should go my way. I need to have control. You need to behave. You need to stop that. And we get complaining and demanding and rude, and arrogant, and prideful, and offended. So unbelief can still be present in a way, functionally, in us believers. Uh, The founder of Salvation Army, Catherine Booth, said, the curse of this age especially is unbelief, frittering the real meaning of God's word away and making it all figure and fiction. I like how she said that. I think Herod, he believed Jesus did all these mighty works. The Nazareth people, his is wisdom, but they would not believe what they were seeing. They would not submit to his will and way. There's another author, a contemporary author, Jackie Hill Perry. She said, unbelief doesn't see God as the ultimate good. So it can't see sin as the ultimate evil. Instead, it sees sin as 
a good thing, and thus God's commands as a stumbling block to joy. I like how she said that. I think sometimes there are places where it's like, I want my way and I want it now. And I need to release that. And maybe the Lord would challenge you as well. As I think he's challenging those in Nazareth and Herod. Jesus wants us to find our true joy in him. And being an apprentice to Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, may mean death to my agenda and self, but that's a good thing. Jesus has a new way of living that's far better. And Nazareth missed it. They clung to unbelief and missed out on blessing. And we don't have to do that. Let's go to verse, chapter 14, a, a second part. This, this will be quicker. Let's look at Herod. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch, nice job, Taylor, reading, by the way, that these are some hard words, heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother's wife, because John had been saying to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head, he was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And the disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. Matthew tells us that Herod thought Jesus was John the Baptist resurrected. This couldn't be because John and Jesus are contemporaries. So did he, Herod believe Jesus was who he said he was? Did he really understand who Jesus was? No, he didn't. He rejects Jesus' beatitude teaching, his teaching about murder. He rejects his teaching about divorce. He rejects his teaching about love up to this point. Instead, he does whatever he thinks is best. He divorced his wife, according to history and other contexts here. He marries his sister-in-law. That's what John the, the Baptist was speaking out against. Then when John was criticizing this, he has him sent to prison and later killed beheaded. Who did Herod believe in? He believed in himself. He was a lover of himself. He was the king of his little domain. So what is Matthew doing with Herod in including this? Although Herod put John in prison, I think Herod is in a worse place. If you remember the parables and the dichotomy between those who pursue the kingdom of heaven and those who don't, Herod is actually in a prison. He's in a prison to his own lusts and desires. He is bound fast by the fear of what other people think of him. He's not seeking to please God. Matthew, this is also just an interesting side note. You know, this is the middle of the book, and you see the, the death of a prophet, the burial of a prophet, and the resurrection of Jesus mentioned, just in the middle of Matthew. 
And Herod is right in that Jesus will rise. Or in this case, he just it's off on his timing. Matthew is illustrating here also in the soils, like the parables, not only the contrast between those, those who follow Jesus into his kingdom and those who don't, but also the soils, the parable soils. This is the bad soil. Like those in Nazareth, Herod rejects the real Jesus. I think Matthew wants us to evaluate what difference does Jesus make in our lives? Who is he? How do we respond to him? We too can give Jesus some credit, but stop short of following him. We can be more concerned about other people think of us, at least I can, than what God thinks of us. We can put our own will, our own selfishness in the driver's seat of life, like Herod. Matthew is inviting us, Jesus is inviting us to throw off these burdens and run to Jesus. Not to be like the townsfolk or Herod. I've heard of this uh, kind of illustration that our, our life, our spiritual life is like a home. And in the home, we have many rooms. If Jesus were to come to your house today, will you let him in every room? I mean, if, it was really, if he was really just coming to have lunch, there are some places in our house that aren't clean and we just don't let people in there, you know? It's not ready for them. It's not prepared for them. We'd rather them not see it. In our own hearts, are there places that are messy like that? Are there places where he wants control and wants to care for us and release us from the bondage of fear, the, the, the bondage of self, where we think we know what's best, but really his way is way better? Can we release control and let him have reign and rule over all our lives? not just part. Jesus is more than a man. He's more than a spiritual guru. He is what the Bible says is the son of man, as prophesied in Daniel chapter 7. He came and lived a perfect life, a blameless life, and died a sinner's death, and then rose victorious. He is the promised king, and he leads us out of bondage into freedom. True freedom, true life. And so we celebrate communion. We remember his body and blood given for us for the forgiveness of sins and life everlasting. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 6, John the Baptist's disciples, they, they go to Jesus and they want to find out John the Baptist is in prison. They want to say, are you the one that, or, or we need to look for another and Jesus tells them, hey, what have you seen? What have you heard? And he goes through all these different miracles. And he says, blessed are those who aren't offended by him. Blessed are those who aren't offended. A positive way to say it, blessed are those who, who, um, who believe. As we finish this morning, let me lay out a few blessings that the townspeople and Herod missed that I don't think we want to forget, that we have access to when we remember his body and blood given to us. Through faith, we obtain forgiveness of sin. That means we no longer have to walk in guilt and shame. Through faith, we are free from the slavery of sin. We can be free, unbound, unshackled to follow him and say no today. 
where we may have said yes yesterday. Through faith, we have a hope of heaven. Jesus conquered death and sits at the right hand of the Father and he's interceding. He's praying for you right now and he's preparing a place for you right now. And once we get to the heavenly kingdom, when it's fully realized, there will be no sickness, sin, or sadness. It will all be joy and peace and rest. Through faith, we have a Father in heaven who adopts you and I as sons and daughters forever. We are his, and his Holy Spirit is in us, and so we are not alone. We are part of a family of faith. That would be the last, uh, last but not the only blessing we have through faith. We are not alone. We are joined together to, as a family of faith filled by the Spirit. These are just a few of the blessings that Nazareth has neglected, that Herod didn't know anything about. So let us evaluate how do we respond to Jesus? Are we going to move more towards the way that of Nazareth, he's just a man, or stop short like Herod does? Or are we going to let him have way with our lives and run with, with reckless abandon, with Jesus. Let's pray as the worship team comes up here and I'll give some instruction about communion. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you give us second chances and third chances and fourth chances and fifth chances and opportunities to obey you in the interruptions and obey you in the disappointments and frustrations and obey you in our plans uh, when they go our way and when they don't. We thank you for having a plan for us and meeting us by the Spirit through your word. We believe you are more than just a man or a myth. You are who you say you are in Scripture. Help us to see Jesus in our day and respond in faith. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you enjoyed this week's sermon. Make sure you come back next week to hear the next message in our series.